Today we're back to studying the story of Jesus as told by John Mark that is full of fascinating, beautiful, and powerful truths. Praise God, the story does not end with verse 37. That is not the closing, the dramatic ending, the last sentence. Now today is not a normal Palm Sunday sermon. We actually preached that sermon, Mark 11, 1 to 11, on October 24th, 2021. And for the last five months, we've been in this section of Jesus being in Jerusalem and watching all that has gone on as he has walked with each breath and each step and each word toward his death on the cross for us. Today we're going to look at quite a number of people's reactions, about seven or eight of them, and a number of events that quickly unfolded in just a relatively short time span from three in the afternoon when Jesus breathed his last until dark around 6 p.m. I've titled this, For Lack of Any Creativity, Jesus' Death Immediately Sets Off a Series of Events and Reactions and that will include ultimately or culminate ultimately in his burial. We're going to look at people like a centurion and a crowd and women and Joseph and Nicodemus. We're going to look at places and events like the temple curtain and an earthquake and open graves and piercing of Jesus' side and the taking down of the body and the preparing of it and enclosing of it in the tomb. All of these things recorded for us in God's word, each one helping to validate the evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is dead. Not mostly dead, half dead, in a coma, in some other kind of unique medical experience, but dead. We have testimony from his friends, but we also have testimony from enemies. We have testimony not just from the religious, but from the secular world as well. There's visual evidence, there's verbal validation, and there's what I call experiential proof, meaning there's steps, historical things that actually happened as part of that evidence as well. So once again, even with a corpse, there is glory to behold in Jesus Would you follow along as we read today's text, starting in verse 37 and going through the end of the chapter? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Father, again, we, as we read this even now, and as we anticipate thinking deeper about it, are amazed by you, your plan, your way of working and accomplishing all of the things. So this morning, Lord, would you grip us afresh with your working to accomplish salvation, with your carrying out every detail of this plan, even as your son's body is without life. Deepen our awe of what you have done, how each of these even contributes toward that. And send us out, Lord, to a week where we will ponder often in the busyness of our lives the fact that your son would do this for us. And may it lead to an eruption of worship next Sunday morning as we gather. We ask in your name. Amen. So verses 37 to 41, we're going to look at about a half a dozen very quick happening. They're almost like uh, short little snapshots, uh, videos, cap scenes. Most of them are one sentence long. And if you just picture Mark is panning the camera and he moves from the cross over to the temple and turns our focus there, first of all, to tell us this one sentence that the curtain of the temple was torn in half completely from top to bottom. This massive, huge, thick, I'm told perhaps as high as 80 feet, so about twice, almost twice what this sanctuary would be, massive curtain that separated out the holy part of the temple uh, where only the priest would go where he could only go if he took blood with him. Reminders from Leviticus today of just the holy awesomeness of that communion with the Lord, the bringing of all of that, the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat, which was on the Ark of the Covenant, all as part of the seeking one time a year for the atonement of sin. What's interesting is that God chooses the timing of this for three in the afternoon. Three in the afternoon is the time that the evening sacrifices began. So imagine what happens in the temple when this massive curtain that would be impossible to tear humanly is torn from top to bottom. In essence, God is making this the most startling announcement that can be for everybody that's in this temple. And he is displaying that this holy place is no longer one confined, secret, hidden place, but opened up to all. In essence, he is saying as he tears the curtain like he'd tear a piece of paper, the first covenant is done, is completed, and has now been rendered obsolete, and God is appropriating and putting into place now by his son's blood a new covenant. And we have a new high priest, an eternal one, that has torn that curtain with his blood and now takes us into this inner 
holy communion with God. So in one way, we could say, in Jesus' birth, God comes to man. In Jesus' death, man is allowed to come to God. A gripping display in broad daylight for all to see the beginning of what Jesus' death accomplished. Hebrews really unpacks this, particularly chapters 8, 9, and 10. We're going to just read a couple of highlights from that. First of all, from chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and that's through his life, through his death, through the greater and more perfect tent. So if you just think of the original tabernacle tent, even the temple as kind of a tent, and then his body also as a tent. And so now he's emphasizing it's not just made with human hands, not of this creation, but this is him. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood and goats and calves, as we saw so much in Leviticus today in Sunday school, but by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. And then later in chapter 10 is this call, this invitation, this urging to, to enjoy all of this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, we don't go in trembling, fearful that we will be struck dead when we are in Christ, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and Hebrews 6 called Jesus a forerunner, or the first one to run into the holy place, and then the invitation now for all of us to run after him and follow him there. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, and that's not this curtain, but it's his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, let us come into this holy space, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience by his blood, not just the blood of goats and lambs, and our bodies washed with pure water. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 6, so we're a ways into Acts, we're probably numerous years from this incident, but there's a short little line in Acts 6-7 that says, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Perhaps, even in this first seconds after Christ's death and the curtain being torn, God begins to plant those seeds where the gospel will bring them, freed from the law, to the freedom in Christ. There's a second event that is not in Mark, but I think it happens simultaneously here, and only Matthew tells us about it, and only this short little clip and it only raises a bazillion questions. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. We're not studying Matthew, so I don't have to explain any of that. <laughs> But it's the second revelation, besides the curtain temple being torn, of what Christ's death means. And it means being raised from the dead. And he will demonstrate that himself in just a few hours. But here is a foretaste, a tiny glimpse, 
So we think of the half dozen or less, probably on one hand, that we can count of Jesus raising people from the dead, culminating, we thought, in Lazarus uh, as he raised him from the dead just a little while before uh, this death. And yet here, there is this incredible resurrection. We don't know how many. We don't know how long they remain alive. We don't know, like, woo, what happened? Uh, we don't know all that's proclaimed there, but I think there is a very powerful gospel presentation mixed into the midst of this, particularly because ultimately it seems to flesh out after his resurrection. And that's all we're going to do with that. Third amazing scene back into Mark, verse 39, Mark now takes the camera down to the centurion and focuses on him for one sentence, but it's a profound one. This man who has stood facing Jesus, probably studying through all of this darkness to make sure that nothing uh, goofy is going on, that nobody's going to take this body, that nothing's going to happen here and hijack the crucifixion, watching it all, whatever he saw, whatever went on, whatever he heard, all of the, from the Father forgive them, including even him, all the way through. Uh, why have you forsaken me all the way through to it is finished? This guy heard and saw every bit of it and was studying it up close. Matthew adds these details that it, they were filled with awe, those that were right there at the cross. And then Luke adds that he praised God, saying this, certainly this man was innocent. Garland notes this, to make this confession, the centurion must have changed his perception of the basic things that governed his entire life, what we would call a worldview. As a centurion, he has sworn allegiance to the emperor, who considers himself a god, and he represents Roman imperial power. For the Romans, the notion of power was central to the definition of deity. And the title, Son of God, properly belonged only to the emperor who embodied Rome's majesty. Remarkably, this soldier bestows the title on a Jew, and a Jew who has been executed. He certainly must have changed his mind, not only about Jesus, but what it meant to be the Son of God. Now, we don't have as clear of a confirming statement. You can go back, Ben as clear of a confirming statement as I would like us to have to indicate that there's a saving faith here. The indication from Luke that he was praising God in the way that he expressed and said this is helpful, but I think these next few remarks we do have to take guardedly because we don't have as much clarity as we would like. But think about the first witness that God chose to declare out loud, this is the Son of God. If you remember, that's how Mark opened the gospel. Verse 1 was, this is the account, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now here, near the very end, through the death, there is this pronouncement as well. But this is a man who is a heartless, cold executioner and he's the one who gives the eulogy at Jesus funeral even more this is a man who carried out Jesus death sentence and now through faith in him and by God's grace 
can receive the total renouncing of his own death sentence before God and have eternal life. Incredible grace. Two conversions at the cross that happens minutes apart. One right before Jesus' death. Today you will be with me in paradise, thief. And right after his death, the pronouncement of him being the son of God by this murderous centurion. Give two, I think, great encouragements to us. To anyone who thinks they are too sinful for God to forgive them, that they have done something too evil, too bad, that there's no way God can forgive them. God holds up these two testimonies. And secondly, for all of us who are witnessing to people who are so hard-hearted to God and to Christ and to the gospel. You have a mocking thief who because of the way Jesus suffered and died, believed. And you have a murdering centurion who because of the way Jesus suffered and died, declared him to be the son of God. Everyone at the cross must study, must contemplate, must wonder, who is this man? What is he doing? Why? And what are the implications of that for my very own life? Fourth amazing scene is not in Mark. It's over in Luke 23. Again, it's just a brief sentence. Now, Ben, you can go there. About the crowds. And we're simply told that they break up. And notice the wording of Luke. They've assembled for this spectacle. But when they see how it actually went down, when they see what transpired after they shouted, crucify him, crucify him, and saw all of those events that we have talked about, and stood there apparently in the three hours of darkness, they returned home beating their breasts. Hard to read exactly what that means, but it certainly seems to imply a remorse, a guilt, a shame, a recognition that they just called for the crucifixion of a man who wasn't guilty, who wasn't a pretender and a fake, and it wasn't blasphemous, but was genuinely the Son of God. Perhaps it helps lay the groundwork, though, for a sermon that Peter will preach about 50 days after this moment, 52 days. And at the end of the sermon, this is how Peter finishes it, let all the house of Israel, let all of you Jews, therefore know for certain that God has made him, the one whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ, or Messiah. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And we're told that 3,000 some people did that day. When a real understanding of Christ's suffering and death comes to sinners. It opens a door for them to be cut to the heart by their own sin and their own responsibility of Christ's death and to repent and believe.
hearing those things. Is there anyone here this morning, even as Chris prayed during his prayer? Is there anybody here who realizes that my sin had to be paid for by Christ and by his death? Is there anyone who longs for that to be appropriated to your own life, not only for this life, but for all of eternity, for you to receive the forgiveness of your sins? I plead with you, come to Christ now. One of his beautiful promises in John 6, 37 is anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. It's a precious, beautiful promise. Whether you're a centurion or a crowd member or a thief or anything else, come, believe, repent, and receive through this corpse and his resurrection eternal life. The fifth amazing scene is in verses 40 through 40. where Mark now takes the camera over to a group of women. There's no action here. This is God simply inserting a commendation, a historical note. He wants to make sure that we know that there is a relatively large contingent of women. Where the men are, we aren't told. We don't know. But there are these women who have stood there and waited and watched. They are the final people, as far as we can tell, at the cross. Even when Jesus is dead, they will not leave him. In his burial here, in his death and burial, they are witnesses. But in his resurrection, they will become key verbal witnesses of his resurrection. Now we're not told if they're sorrowing. We're not told if they're reminding each other that he promised he would rise in three days. We don't know what's going on in their minds. God has not chosen to reveal that. But it's just a reminder. Don't forget, these are faithful followers who have stood there who have ministered to Jesus through all of this time, and now are standing there as well. And then a sixth and final snapshot that we have to go over to the Gospel of John for. In John chapter 19, we're told that because of the timing, right before the Sabbath, that the Jews asked Pilate that they could break the legs, that the legs would be broken, and the bodies could be taken away. And so the soldiers broke the legs of the first thief, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and did not break his legs. Which we're told a little bit later down is a fulfillment of Scripture that not one of his bones would be broken and that they would look on one whom they have pierced. And we're told in this account as well that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. That's not a light poke If you remember when Jesus is raised from the dead, that he says to Thomas, put your hand in my side. There's a profuse gouging, gushing of water and blood for further indication of his death. 
and the scene closes. <clears throat> Six amazing events that take place while Jesus is hanging on the cross. Six amazing reactions that all come about according to God's plan. And now he is going to bring, for this final scene in Mark 15, two members of the Sanhedrin. Mark only tells us about one, uh, but we will see that there are two that carry out the critical transition of Jesus' body from hanging on the cross to being buried in the tomb. So significant that when Paul is spelling out the gospel, the things that are of first importance uh, that he would preach, he included not only the death and not only the resurrection, but he included also the burial of Christ, the validation of him. And such that we also say in the Apostles' Creed that he was buried. Norval Gelden Hughes notes about this. The narrative of Jesus' passion ends on a note of exceptional beauty in the description of his burial. For in it we see how the dead body of the Savior, from the time that it was removed from the rough cross by hands of affection, was cared for by no other hands than those of his faithful followers. And now we're introduced in verse 42 and 43 to Nicodemus. We're just a few minutes or perhaps an hour or hour and a half from darkness, from when they need to be done. And Joseph, and now we're told two things by Mark. He's a respected member of the council, and he's looking for the kingdom of God. Matthew helps us out even more. Next slide, please, if we can. Matthew helps us out even more by describing and telling us that he is a rich man and that he is a disciple of Jesus. Another gospel accounts, though secretly, because he was fearful of the Jews. And then Luke tells us that he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to the decision and the actions to have Jesus crucified. So this man, not making his first stand because he has stood up against the Sanhedrin's vote to uh, crucify Christ, but certainly risking greatly here, took courage, Mark says. He gathered up tremendous courage out of his own conviction and compassion, and he goes, first of all, to Pilate. Huge risk with Pilate. Why is nobody else going? Why is Jesus' family not gone? Why have none of the disciples gone? Why have even not the women gone that we know of? It seems out of all of this mass of people, Joseph is the one who is willing to take that risk, not knowing what in the world Pilate will do to him, who wants to be done with this whole thing. And he's taken a risk with the Jews, certainly even his own associates in the Sanhedrin, for they would certainly, if they didn't see, would hear about it. And there are all kinds of implications that could come from that going forward. Additionally, he was ceremonially defiled just moments before the Passover began. But he couldn't let Jesus' mangled, mutilated body either, depending on who you read, rot on the cross, be thrown into a mass grave, be thrown into the, the uh, fire that never goes out, Gehenna, in the valley outside of Jerusalem, or be ravaged by wild animals. Perhaps uh, Joseph is honoring also Deuteronomy 21, the law which said that a man who was hung, that body was not to remain all night on the tree, 
but to be buried that same day or it would defile the land. Mark Car Michael Card adds this, to bury the dead was the greatest act of hesed or mercy in Judaism. It was considered especially pious because the person who performed the act of burial could not be thanked. And just a moment for our own thoughts here. When it's costly for you to be a follower of Christ, to be obedient to what he has commanded of you, what will you do? What will be your response? Remember that Jesus said in Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, reminding us that the context in which we need to not be ashamed is challenging. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And the reminder from Paul in 2 Timothy that we are not to have a spirit of fear, fear of man, fear of what might happen to us, fear of consequences, but we are to walk in the power of God with love and self-control. Verse 44 and 45 tell us of Pilate's surprise and then the permission that he grants. And I, I would be curious to know how the centurion affirmed to Pilate the death of Jesus. Um, but Pilate, or Joseph then, given that permission, goes out and buys a linen shroud, perhaps the nicest one that he can find, and taking him down. If you just pause and think about that, God gives no other detail focus to us about that. But it's a pretty uh, remarkable scene. If you've ever touched a corpse, it's eerie. But this body... Isaiah 53 told us would be a body that didn't even look human. It was so ravaged. So imagine how you take the nails out, how you take that body down, how you transport it and carry it over to the tomb. Incredible expression of love and care. As J.C. Ryle noted, others honored and confessed our Lord when they saw him working miracles. But Joseph honored and confessed him when he saw him, a cold, blood-sprinkled corpse. Others had shown love to Jesus while he was speaking and living, but Joseph showed it when Jesus was silent and dead. Then he and Nicodemus, because we're told that here in John chapter 19, wrap him in a linen shroud. Next slide, if you would. We're told that Nicodemus also brought about 75 pounds of spices with them. So all of these liquids to uh, put on the body and in the body as part of the embalming process of it. And then wrapped it, bound it in the linen cloths with those spices, as was the custom of the Jews. And then they took that shroud-encased body and laid him in a tomb. And John adds the detail that this tomb was in a garden that was right beside the uh, Golgotha, and that it was a new tomb, that no body had yet been laid in it. And we find out that it is likely uh, Joseph's own tomb that he had either purchased to have carved out, or perhaps had even done the work himself. Um, and it fulfills through that Isaiah 53, 9, which said that Jesus would be buried 
or have a grave with the wicked, meaning buried like all other sinners like you and me, and that he would be buried with a rich man. Ironically, of all the simplicity and the poverty of Jesus' life, he ends up in the fanciest of graves. And they then rolled a stone against the entrance. And we can now pronounce that Jesus is buried. Jesus is in the grave where all of us are going as well. Jesus has participated in our humanity all the way down to the burial, to the ending. Now he did have the promise in Psalm 1610 that God would not let his Holy One see corruption. That before it would begin to decay, God would act and he would be raised from the dead. But for now, we simply are closed with this simple statement, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid, and they apparently also prepared spices and ointments and perhaps assisted Joseph and Nicodemus. Pretty amazing how many things happened between three and six. Imagine somebody dying in Lincoln and being buried by, by three hours later. Amazing all that's taken place in the last 24 hours. About 24 hours ago, they were beginning the Last Supper. And amazing how many things have taken place in a week since Jesus came in on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem. But every single event, perfectly planned out by God, perfectly carried out by the Son, every second, every conversation, every detail, every individual, all by God's sovereign, perfect working to accomplish our salvation. Two other quick things just to note about this closing scene, neither of which are in Mark. So we're not studying them, but just noting them for a fullest picture here of what's going on. But I think it's a notable sentence at the end of Luke 23, 56 says, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. And remember that their Sabbath began at sundown. So perhaps all of this happens just right up to the very edge of that. But according to the commandment, according to the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, according to the law of God, which they are obedient to, even in this holy moment, they rest. Philip Riken says if there ever was an exception to the fourth commandment, it would have been on this day and for this reason. But the closest disciples of Jesus Christ were serious about keeping the Sabbath, far more than we. This is one of the ways they honored God, by resting on his holy day. But ironically, there's somebody, a group of people who did not rest. And it's a group of people that scolded Jesus constantly for not resting on the Sabbath. Matthew tells us in chapter 27, verses 62 to 66, that a group of them went to Pilate and, next slide please, and asked for permission to seal the tomb. And it's interesting what they say. They say, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. The memory of evil people carrying out evil plans can be incredible. They might remember more markedly than even the followers of Christ. 
Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure, lest his disciples go steal his body and tell the people he has risen from the dead, which is the story they end up making up anyway. And they note the last fraud, the fraud about the resurrection, will be worse than the first fraud, his claim to be the Messiah. So Pilate grants that permission, and they go and they secure the tomb by sealing the stone and then setting a guard. We don't know how many for sure, but a guard, a unit of people there to protect it. And that's where chapter 15 ends and leaves us as we wait for next Sunday's pronouncement of the resurrection of Christ as they come to the tomb and discover him to be gone and not among the dead. I want to really encourage you to come Friday night. Uh, we will go backwards in time from where we're at right now in Mark and again contemplate the death of Christ and sing of it and then Sunday morning. Incredible events. Let me just remind you of them quickly. The curtain ripping the saints being raised from the dead, the centurion confess confessing Jesus is the Son of God, the crowds beating their breasts, the faithful women watching and waiting, the soldiers piercing Jesus' side, and Joseph and Nicodemus and the women putting Jesus' body in the grave. John writes two things toward the end of his account that I think are both worth noting and reminding ourselves of as we close. First, from John chapter 19, we read it earlier today, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. No fake news here. All of it, so that you may believe. And then toward the, further toward the end of John, in chapter 20, verse 31, John writes these, Everything I have put into my account are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. At this moment in time, at the end of Mark 15, from a human standpoint, it looks hopeless. We have a dead Messiah, and dead Messiahs cannot save anyone. Praise God. Come back next Sunday for the rest of the story that makes life from this dead body possible by faith. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every detail you include, for our privilege to be able to see all of that and synchronize it together and see a beautiful, powerful unfolding of your plan. We praise and thank you for this death, for this corpse, for this burial, for all that it did in accomplishing ultimately your salvation. We pray now that you will stir our hearts all week long with the wonder of who you are, of who Jesus is, and of what he has done for us. We ask in your name, amen.